have the opportunity to talk to my sweet and brilliant friend, Rachel Carter. We talk about how we met, chronic illness, chronic illness community and advocacy, how she met her husband, and her experience recently of getting subpoenaed. Listen in to get to know Rachel. so much for doing this with me today. I'm so excited to talk to you. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm really glad to be here. So anyone listening, this is my friend Rachel Carter. And when I was waiting for you to call in, I was actually trying to remember how long I've known you because it's been a long time. And I was thinking you probably have the stats better because you probably remember when heel click started which is where I know you from yeah that was back in 2014 maybe 2013 depending on when you joined do you remember if the site was in beta uh I don't remember I know I was relatively early on but I probably wasn't first maybe not first round of people so let's call it late 2013 either way that sounds about right so I've known you yeah about six years ish yeah sometime we need to meet up in person and really make this official (laughs) I feel like there's so many people that I wish I could meet in real life there's so many amazing people can you tell us a little bit about heel click and what it was so people know how we met Yeah, so back in 2013, um, I got involved with a couple other uh, patients who uh, were building a startup and an app. So we were building like the Yelp for treatments is what we called it. The name of the site was HealClick, and uh, it was a really amazing opportunity. I got to work with a lot of people and learn way more than I expected to. I was also uh, a senior in college at the time, so it was a wild ride, but um, I moved out to Las Vegas to participate in a startup accelerator and did the whole co-founder thing. Uh, The site is no longer with us uh, due to some legal issues, but uh, it was an amazing community Mm -hmm. and I made so many friends on there. And I I really don't know what my life would look like without it. Like It's hard Mm -hmm. for me to imagine everything that I have now without having taken that wild ride Mm, I bet yeah it was foundational for you huh absolutely so so that was a time in my life where I was also where I was really sick and I ended up finding that website um and it was a savior for me it was I was kind of hitting rock bottom with things and there was a lot of fear and uh, I found you guys and it was the most beautiful and wonderful community that I've been involved with so far in my life of chronic illness. Now, after that, um, what, what did you do after heel click? Uh, so in 2014, Wait, okay, so in December of 2014, I graduated from college and I was still 
uh, working full time uh, on heel click at that point. And um, I started freelancing as well because I like eating. And so, um, <laughs> yeah, I picked up some contracts. And at one point, I think I had five different contracts at the same time, which I definitely don't recommend. Uh, just doing remote work, I did like WordPress development and I sold SEO marketing packages and I, I really, I said yes to just about anything at that mm -hmm. point. Uh, but I found one of the contracts and I worked that one up to full time. And I've been there now for five years doing like uh, technical support for a information security reporting software company. So it's an interesting field that I never thought I'd be in. I graduated with a public health degree. So here mm -hmm. I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and from what you've told me, you you eventually want to be doing something more related to health. Um, but for right, right now, this is good for you. Um, but I hear that you're also working with some other things on the side that are kind of more in your line of passion with health stuff. Yeah, I'm not sure if I will ever make the jump to like doing something in the health space as my career again. Mostly mm -hmm. because remote work isn't really currently an option there. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I call it my hobby. And um, mm -hmm. I've been working with uh, a team out at Columbia University in New York, uh, doing amazing research into ME-CFS, which is, uh, I think, my primary diagnosis at this point. Uh, they're doing a lot of just research, and mm -hmm. then I'm helping on uh, mobile app development, and then just kind of community engagement and helping them, you know, write Facebook posts that won't, uh, that, you know, have the right tone and will convey the message that they want and not fall into some, you know, pitfalls and kind of common issues that you see when doctors try to communicate directly to patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And for, if anyone listening that's not in the chronic illness world, MECFS is uh, also known as chronic fatigue. Is that, did you want to expand on that at all, Rachel? Or Yeah. Uh, so the full acronym is ME slash CFS. The ME is myalgic encephalomyelitis and the CFS is chronic fatigue syndrome. It's uh, poorly uh, characterized in a lot of media, but uh, the science is starting to get there. And, you know, these world-class researchers definitely believe that this is a real biological illness and not, uh, for example, laziness or the yucky mm -hmm. flu or any of those right. other semi-derogatory terms that have been thrown around a lot in the last few decades. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a very real thing. Um, and yeah, so you, I've watched you be a really strong advocate in the world of chronic illness, um, MECFS and other things like Lyme um, and other autoimmune diseases. What, uh, what has been your experience? Now, recently you were, you went to New York, right? Yeah. To yeah. That was with Columbia. Mm -hmm. What was that experience like for you? Uh, it was really interesting. That's the first time that I have been to an in-person meeting, uh, you know, for anything research related. So um, I had the opportunity to fly out there for a 
a meeting of different NIH centers who research MECFS. So uh, mm -hmm. there's uh, Columbia, Cornell, and uh, Jackson Labs, which is an independent facility up in Maine, mm -hmm. maybe? I think I'm getting that wrong, but uh, <laughs> they were all getting together with various NIH representatives to kind of talk about um, unpublished research and strategies and kind of how everybody can work together to get closer to a biomarker and eventually treatments for that. I think that's the biggest issue with the condition right now is that you can't test for it directly it's a diagnosis of exclusion where you know they have to rule out that you don't have everything else and then if you still meet the case definition mm -hmm. you have the diagnosis but eventually we're going to find you know like a blood test or some other test like that to be able to say oh yes you definitely have it um, and until that comes it's still hard to know how many people are affected for example yeah absolutely I see. So you and I were talking also about what illness has been like, what your experience has been like in your life with illness. And you, you were very young when you got sick, right? Yeah, I was like 15 when I finally was like, oh, there's something really wrong. I need to start, you know, going to the doctor. But I had been like, trying to tough it out for a few months before that so it's it's hard I didn't have the like immediate onset where like I got sick and then the next mm -hmm. day everything was different uh, mm -hmm. so I I count everything from September of 2007 but it's a little vague in the months before that okay yeah so what what was that like for you to to be in a in the normal world with illness at such a young age? It was really, it was really emotionally destabilizing because I mean, being 15 is like terrible in its own way. And then to, <laughs> yeah. you know, at the same time, be told by a doctor that there's nothing wrong with you when you like can barely walk or function is like, yeah. it, it changed my whole perception of the world. Um, Add on top of that, that I live down the street from Mayo Clinic at the time. Um, mm. And because it was like, you know, take her to Mayo. I'm sure they can figure out what's wrong. And they mm. yeah, kind of not very politely told me to go away. <laughs> uh, in fact, they sent yeah. me to a like training camp where they taught us how not to seek medical attention and mm -hmm. not to display what they called pain behaviors so that oh, wow. uh, none of our friends and family would know that we were in pain. Uh, my wow. illness started off, I was diagnosed first with just chronic pain and that's as specific as they wanted to get. Um, so yeah, yeah they, they taught us the pain behaviors and they told me to never talk about it again, like including with my immediate family. So that led to all kinds of problems. <laughs> oh yeah, that's horrific. That sounds totally traumatizing yeah it it was and invalidating and I mean all the oh wow yeah, yeah. so I mean that was it was incredibly and you grew confusing. up in Minnesota right yeah yeah Rochester Minnesota home of the 
the fanciest part of Mayo. You know, I was mm -hmm. I was going to see, you know, these world renowned specialists and going, what do you mean there's nothing wrong with me? I know there's something very wrong with me. Yeah. And the and the thing about this story is that this is really common oh, for yeah. people like in these types of situations. Right. Like we see I mean, this happened to me. It took me 30 years to get a Lyme diagnosis. And, you know, 20 years of that was it was just desperately seeking for answers. So that's, um, there's so much trauma that occurs between the time of starting to feel like something's wrong with me to getting any kind of answers. Yeah. So how did, so how did things kind of roll out from there for you? Yeah, it, it was a lot of ups and downs. Um, I, I have a very like roller coaster kind of presentation with my condition. So I had mm -hmm. some good years in there where I uh, looked like a relatively normal college student for a mm -hmm. short period of time. And then, you know, I lost the ability to read real quick and, you know, couldn't get out of bed and had to, so I dropped out of college twice or took a medical leave of absence, depending on how you factor in various ones. And I jumped around various colleges because I, I really didn't know what to do. Um, I really struggled with how to plan my life when nobody could tell me what to expect. Because, mm -hmm. you know, at 16, yeah. 17, 18, everybody, you know, what's your major going to be? And I'm like, I don't know can anybody tell me whether it's reasonable for me to assume I can work in an office 40 hours a week <laughs> or whether mm -hmm. like, or whether I'm going to have the cognitive capacity to do like mm -hmm. mental work. Should I be looking for a more physical job where I don't really mm -hmm. have to like do math? <laughs> um, and, and nobody could give me any sort of guidance on that. And so I really struggled with identity you know I think even at mm -hmm. a deeper level than most teenagers which is already an issue so yeah. it, it's hard yeah. for me to parse out how much of my experience in my teenage years was normal versus not because so much of it was tied up with not only do I you know not know who I am but I'm supposed to make a decision with no information on my future yeah that sounds really difficult yeah um so I got really sick um, when I was 18. My college is also a weird, long, drawn out process because I started uh, college at 16. There's a program here in Minnesota where if you academic academically qualify, you can go to a community college the last two years of high school and the state pays for it. It's incredible. Uh, mm -hmm. So I was able to do that, but um, the second year, I gave a PowerPoint presentation to my parents and convinced them that I should move an hour away. Nice. And so like I was a senior in high school, basically just masquerading as a college freshman because unless you like yeah. could see my records, you wouldn't know that I was still technically a high school student. And that was wonderful until I crashed really hard in the spring semester and after that I was close to incapacitated um I didn't actually I tried to start school um 
in the fall, like as a real college freshman. And I came, I moved back home within, it's either a week or 10 days. I can't remember how long I lasted, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, at that point I gave up a full ride academic scholarship and just kind of gave up. Um, I, mm-hmm. cause everybody said I was fine medically and right. um, it wasn't until I stumbled across the concept of Lyme disease and found a local specialist that I was like, oh, yeah. there might be something that could be yeah. treated. I still <clears throat> don't know what to do with the Lyme diagnosis for myself because I've never had a positive mm-hmm. test, but I respond really mm-hmm. well to the treatments. Mm, that's so interesting. Yeah. So, and that's a thing, though, like that, that it is true that you can test negative and still be assumed that you have it. Yeah. Um, from what I know. So, so yeah. So if treatment works, it's like, Hey, do what works. Exactly. And that's, that was the philosophy starting at about age 19, where I was like, okay, if antibiotics are going to give me my life back. I don't really care if I have the condition and my doctor is happy to, you know, work with me without needing the like positive stamp on it. And so, yeah, yeah. It's been, that was very transformative for me. And that was also when I was introduced to this concept of MECFS. Um, yeah, where I was like, oh, there's something that explains the fact that I can't exercise. And if I like use mm-hmm. scissors too long, I will have to recover for multiple days because that is something mm-hmm. I've done to myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that was, that was the point for me where I kind of started turning things around again. Um, I started turning things around and assumed I was cured and went back way too hard into things, but uh, okay. that's yeah. who I am as a person. And also in my defense, I was told that I was cured. So uh, yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. So within yeah. six months of starting treatment, I enrolled in a school two hours away from my parents' house and was like, cool, I'm going to college and uh-huh. do that. And that was, I was not ready, but I, continued doing that and eventually graduated with the public health degree so it worked Mm -hmm. um but had I had I think taken more time and looked at my options I would have realized that a a tech remote work option would have made more sense Uh because while I love you know environmental and public health and all of the work that I did there Um, I had an internship with the EPA that was amazing. And like all of this stuff, I can't work in a building 40 hours a week with other people. Like I don't, I don't have the energy. Mm -hmm. I can, I can work 40 hours a week, which is like shocking, but I walk (laughs) across my hallway and I don't put on regular clothes until dinner time. Like there's a, I, I don't know. What, what I would do if I had to commute and be in an office and like socially interact, especially on bad days. Right. Yeah, it's a totally different world. Um, so you're working 40 hours a week all from home or are you working a little bit? You're 40 hours, yeah, right, right yeah. now? 
So I'm, I'm completely yeah. full-time and 100% remote. I have yet to meet anyone I work with. I'm told they're <laughs> all real. They look the same every video call. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, that's great, though. I, I'm so happy that that works out for you. Yeah, it, it has been really amazing to have that and to have been able to keep up with it because there have been several times where I'm like, yeah, I'm going to have to cut my hours. This is it. Cause I've, I've sort of yeah. been, been waiting for like the day where I can't do it anymore. And uh, I don't know, it's still going. Still going. Well, you're one of the more hardworking, organized and driven people that I've ever known. <laughs> so if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be you. And I noticed that in the chronic illness community there is a lot of type a personalities and there's a lot of people that are just driven you know and want so badly to be able to um <clears throat> you know function on a on what's considered a normal level and then there's this this balance of you know bringing in the awareness of our needs and self-care and things like that and still wanting to express that innate nature that we have and um i yeah I've, I've always been really impressed i mean even at heel click uh when i think you're in a very interesting stage in your life <laughs> <laughs> i mean you guys were holding that thing up just incredibly so when I say interesting in our life, I'm referring to living you living in the desert in basically a, a trailer, right? Do you want to talk about that at yeah, all? Yeah, so I didn't even have a trailer. <laughs> okay. I, uh, yeah, so I moved out to Vegas. I actually was supposed to be out there for an unrelated conference. It was uh, for an inter internship that I had in college. I got a flight out to Vegas and was like, let me see how it goes because the the other co-founder was in Vegas working full-time on the startup and I was like stay with him I'll see you know how how we work together in real life and like we had talked about like maybe I'll stay <laughs> um and yeah I just canceled my return flight and moved out there with a carry-on and a backpack nice. um kind of <laughs> But <laughs> well, not nice. But I mean, now, was this for is this for mold avoidance? Was that your main it, desire? At the time? My main desire at the time was to see how far we could take the website, and I was curious about mold avoidance at the time because the other co-founder mm -hmm. was doing mold avoidance like hardcore, and I was like, "Yeah, this will be interesting. It'll be like a double mentorship." <laughs> um, uh -huh. Because I knew. I was incredibly like chemically and environmentally sensitive and I had mm -hmm. I had been able to get it down to like a semi-manageable level but I knew that it was a huge trigger for me um, and so I wanted to give it a try and just kind of see what happened but uh, mm -hmm. I ended up over time realizing that I couldn't find a house that I could tolerate and so I ended up living in the passenger seat of a Toyota Tacoma for 155 days. That was my record. You were there that long? Oh, that was just in the truck. Yeah. 
Yeah, I guess I didn't realize you were in the truck that long. I know you were there longer, but yeah. I guess I didn't realize you were in the truck for that many Some days. Some of those I'm, days I'm were in a tent. That. But okay. other than that, yes. Still very stressful. I'm saying this because as we speak, I'm on month four of being homeless. So I've been living in many different places, including my car. And it's unfortunately all too common in this world, but it's also very stressful (laughs) and very physically uncomfortable. And it's very hard to be ungrounded and not really have a place that feels like home. So where did you go after the truck? Yeah, so eventually I I gave up is what I thought I was doing. And I was like, I'm, I'm just moving indoors. There was a house that we had access to that I knew I did not do well in. But I was like, honestly, what's the worst yeah. that can happen? And yeah. I was then- I was not good, but I did not die. <laughs> and so like, uh-huh. that was enough at that point. I was so drained that anything that wasn't like life-threatening was like reassuring Uh to just know like I can sleep I didn't have to go through the like nightly panic of like where am I gonna sleep oh my god I can you're it's like it's like giving me chills right now even just listening to that because I can so relate right now yeah I that that is such an awful feeling I I didn't I mean I grew up like stereotypical middle class probably like everything like a stay-at-home mom I was homeschooled like I had no experience with anything remotely close to this and it was so bizarre Mm -hmm. to live in this alternate reality where it was like you know trying to sleep in parking lots and getting kicked out by security in the middle of the night Mm. and you know yeah not sure whether somebody was going to come knock on the car window and make us leave again and you know just the sense of like lack of stability and how long it took me after you know I had stable housing again to just feel like settled was really it was really bizarre to mm-hmm. to do that and yeah so eventually I got inside of a house in Vegas uh, and then we just kind of left I honestly don't remember what prompted it but um I had oh no I do remember so I had (laughs) I had $2,100 to my name at that point and I Mm -hmm. got it all out in cash and I held it and I was like okay (laughs) once this is gone I'm going home because I knew you know I could come back to Minnesota and my parents would like come home sooner and so yeah um, yeah I was like, I, this is my runway. When this is gone, I will go back. And, um, you know, if I didn't have a job with stable income, by the time that money ran out, um, which was June 1st, I had uh, timed it all out. I was, uh-huh. I was done. And I landed a job the last day of May. <laughs> oh, wow. And so then okay. we went on this like multi-state housing spree trying to find somewhere um, where we could live. And we ended up right outside of Albuquerque in a cute little casita. And mm, I remember that. It yeah. was absolute bliss for 
a couple of months <laughs> until the like shower started leaking and no one knew because it was leaking oh. like inside the wall and like how do you tell until the wall started leaking and then there was oh, black no. mold and it, it, yeah so after that I came to Rochester again <laughs> that's heartbreaking <laughs> yeah yeah so it, okay so then you made it back home after yeah. that which at least was a slightly more triumphant return because it was like well I'm physically devastated but I can support myself <laughs> which yeah isn't the best trade-off but at the time it felt important to like prove that I could do things on my own because I, mm-hmm. I mean growing up you know, in the formative years, so much of my life was spent just managing my condition that I didn't feel like, I didn't feel like I was, what, 22, 23, 24. Like I felt like I was still stuck at like 16 when I moved out to Vegas. Yeah. And so like, feeling, I really, yeah. I feel like my time in the desert was like adulthood on fast forward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I came back. <laughs> to Minnesota at 24 and was kind of like, okay, I think I've learned some things. I think I know more yeah. about what's happening. Yeah, illness makes you grow up quick or or not even grow up, but um I mean for me it's been a it's a been a really strong spiritual journey too. Just you have to really, you know, peel back all the layers of who yeah. you are and uh, get down to the core of what why are we here? What is this life for? Um, when you can't, you know, when all the distractions go away and, and you're just left with your, your body that you're not really sure what's going on and how you're going to handle that. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. Cause I, I spent a lot of time, mm-hmm. there are several years in the middle of that story that honestly, I can't remember a single thing that happened the entire year because like I was just, yeah, I was just like sleeping and eating because that's all I could do. And that really, and that really challenges the like, why am I still doing this? (laughs) Like the essential question of like, why why am I here? What is, why should I keep going? And Yeah. yeah, I think that's something that just about everybody with a chronic illness has had to grapple with at some point. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a topic. I mean, I could talk about that alone for hours Um, because I think it's one of the most interesting pieces of chronic illness, the connection that's made to oneself through, through all the different experiences, whether it's homelessness, you know, or, um, just actual physical pain or losing relationships or losing jobs or, you know, all the ins and outs that happen. Speaking of, um, so now you're married and, um, so congratulations. It was almost a year ago. Exactly. Right. End of April. So we're coming up on the one year anniversary. That's so Thank exciting. You. And 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 I felt so I felt so privileged because I got to actually be at your wedding virtually. Yes. yes. And that was super exciting and one of the best ideas ever because we were there was a whole group of us 
that got to join you virtually from all over the world. Um, not at the actual wedding, but we did like the post wedding, watching the video and hang out with you and your wonderful husband, Jordan. Yeah, that I, I had been thinking about that like before we got engaged because I knew there were so many people that I like, I wanted, I wish everybody could have been there on the day, but I knew it was unreasonable for the yeah. vast majority of the people on that call yeah. to make a cross country trip, much less like hang out in a crowded room. So right. yeah. and I didn't, I didn't yeah. want to like just live stream it to you guys and then miss the opportunity to like see you and talk to you and hang out and like swap stories and things. So I, I was really glad that it worked out that I think it was the weekend after um, where we yeah. just kind of sat on a call for actually we had two different calls and sat on yeah. like a couple <laughs> of hours and just it it was like getting it, it was the same feeling as like seeing like cousins I haven't seen in a while or like friends from way back that it, it was it was so important to me that like that group be included because it was such a big part of how I got to that day yeah wow yeah it was really special for me too um yeah I it was uh between the wedding and then your honeymoon so it was yeah it was somewhere in that time um yeah and so what was it like for you to be to have that experience of like that day I mean that must have been such an amazing day and and I know I mean I got to I've got to meet Jordan virtually obviously not in real life but um he's totally amazing and yeah and so what is that what was that experience like for you of meeting him and getting to know him and then you guys deciding to get married just tell me a little bit yeah so uh we actually met the well okay so we met on okay cupid and so we matched when i was home from albuquerque uh I was visiting Minnesota for the first time since I moved out west uh, for one of my best friend's weddings that I officiated. And I'd wake up yeah. this morning to this wonderfully long message from this guy. And I just remember thinking, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> because he was in the one place that I swore I would never live as an adult. Oh, okay, okay. I I was very much the kid who's like, watch mom and dad, I'm gonna move far away. I'm out of here. (laughs) (laughs) And now wait, hold on, just interject. Can you tell me exactly how far away you live from the house you grew up in? (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Yeah. So we met um like a month later, we had some video calls and like got along great. And we met in real life uh, the first time in September of 2015, I came back uh, to Minnesota for another conference. And like, it took me out to an apple orchard, which was like my favorite place in the whole area and very sweet and like, I met his friends on the second day. Like it was, it was like wonderful. And so on the third date, 
I freaked out <laughs> and I broke up with him. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Oh yeah. I had this moment where I like saw what our future should have been and like I freaked out because I just assumed that everything different that I brought to the table would be too much and like I thought I was like saving myself a ton of like heartache by just being like no because so okay wait hold on so what do you yeah okay I want to get into that a little bit I want to clarify what do you mean do you mean that you yeah what do you mean by that so I he in my opinion at the time it was like he's too stable and normal for me oh isn't that interesting okay yeah where I was convinced that like because he was like 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 I said like too too normal (laughs) that he wouldn't be interested once I was like okay so I can't do this I can't do this and I can't do this and you know like yeah I'm not high maintenance but my body is <laughs> right and so it was so it was fears of chronic illness of oh absolutely yeah and of just like I'm that I be, I'm not going to be enough because I have these things yeah and so rather than talk about it like a mature person I was just <laughs> like no <laughs> well yeah I mean that makes sense though have that fear come in yeah, I mean, it's, well, it's and- really hard. I, I mean, dating, I imagine, is hard no matter what. I don't really – I was in a long-term relationship for a very long time. So it had been a long time since I dated. But and but then, you know, I, I did end a relationship that was partly due to the difficulties of illness um, affecting the relationship. So it's a very real scary thing. Yeah. I totally get it. It's It's – it's scary to think of losing something because of something you kind of have no control of. Yeah. There was, there was a lot of work I had to do to be like, here is me. How you doing with it? Eventually. Cause I just, it was very scary for me. This was my first like serious relationship. Like I had like a, a quote boyfriend in college, but it was like a few months and like, it wasn't, nothing was serious about it and so this was the first relationship where I really had to be like here let me tell you about my insecurities or anything approaching that and I don't know how I would have done that from you know thousands of miles away also yeah it's definitely much harder and at that you're still like relatively young at that point and I mean it sounds like you're also still kind of coming into what self-love self-love and self-acceptance means for you let alone to then be sharing that with someone else and allowing that into your life right exactly yeah so it wasn't until I came back um almost a year later so I, I moved back to Minnesota in the spring of 2016 and then in the fall of 2016 uh one of my friends convinced me to email Jordan again <laughs> and first apologize for breaking up and then just kind of be like hey I'm I'm back in the area yeah and he immediately was like let's meet and we 
we did and and it was amazing and he, I mean he had questions but he never mm-hmm. he never like held it against me mm-hmm. or like questioned my decision or like I, I was expecting to feel guilty and he was just like you're here now this is great oh and it yeah and we've been together ever since yeah yeah he seems very sweet and very um patient and gentle yeah yeah that's very accurate so you married him so that's good yep (laughs) (laughs) exactly i i knew pretty early on that it was you know that it was very seriously also we we moved really fast (laughs) once we started like officially dating i think we both had a sense of like I'm not letting this one get away again. Yeah. And a sense we, that this is this is right. This is happening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean we, we just make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. We took our first like we we traveled to Hawaii together uh when we five months in. Mm-hmm. So we were we were like booking like large scale plane yeah. tickets in like three months. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I like it. Yes. And my mom really liked it. My mom does not approve of like most people my mom is a very very hard sell especially Uh on like dating options yeah and at three months she was like so do you think he's gonna propose like mom no stop (laughs) yeah but that was she was sold but that was okay yeah that was that knowingness that kind of everyone had from the beginning it sounds like yeah yeah that's wonderful. I love a I love a love story. You told me we were talking earlier and you told me that you had a funny story to share. Oh, yes. So uh, at the end of January of this year, I was like getting done with work and there's a knock on the door and nobody knocks on the door unless it's like UPS and then they go back to their truck anyway. I never like yeah answer the door for a surprise but no I answered it this time and it was a IRS special agent with a badge holding out at me going are you Rachel oh no I don't know how to answer this (laughs) (laughs) and so I said yes and he handed me a subpoena and I was like what what is happening I paid my taxes I swear like (laughs) all these thoughts running through my head of like why wouldn't you like why wouldn't you send me a letter why wouldn't you talk to my accountant first this feels like a real big escalation so turns out I was subpoenaed to testify against my old dentist in a tax evasion case in federal court oh wow okay well that's a bit of a relief and then also (laughs) weird (laughs) I agree so yes that's what I did the end of February the first weekend of March I think it was the first weekend of March so you had to go to court yeah and And, like I got sworn in oh and I had to be like that was my dentist yes I paid him that was the check we used to pay him like a a star witness right here (laughs) (laughs) so what do you know what came of the case like what happened oh he was found guilty he's evaded taxes before this so okay so he is not your dentist anymore no no (laughs) Have you found another dentist? I have not. <laughs> it takes time. It takes time to find a good dentist. 
it's more of a procrastination issue. Yeah. <laughs> I also haven't tried any other dentists, which I really should. But now, with the current state of um, quarantines, I don't know. I'm, I'm feeling pretty justified in my decision. Well, so that's interesting because we haven't brought that up yet. Um, it, we are we are talking, we are recording this podcast at a time where coronavirus is is very alive um so yeah and it sounds like you and I were talking about this the other day and it sounds like we're living in very different worlds I'm in Portland Oregon where everything has been shut down and everything has stopped we don't yet have orders to stay in our house but we have certain orders like to you know not have gatherings over 10 people and um social distancing six feet away yada yada which I yada yada is not downplaying out because I I'm assuming that everyone by the time they listen to this they already know what's going on um but it sounds like you are living a little bit of a different experience um maybe people not quite there yet yeah so as of yesterday they're closing school on Wednesday and Oh, they're closing like bars and restaurants except takeout, I think. Okay. And like this stuff is finally happening. But like wow. as of this weekend, um, you know, one of my friends, like really good friends is a pastor in North Dakota and he had to preach two different, like he preached at two different congregations of like elderly people. And then oh. they had a potluck. Oh no. And, like, I know. That's and, not like, good. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, there's still, like, okay. there's still debate here about, like, whether it's real. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's a really scary time. It's yeah. very surreal and um, a lot of unknowns, and it seems like everything's changing really quickly day to day, so. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, waking up in the morning is kind of like, okay, what happened overnight? <laughs> right? I know. I know. I was talking to a friend today who, he, you know, he said the, when I first wake up in the morning, I just have this impulse. I just have to start reading the news and see what's going on. My experience when I wake up has been that I think that it's a dream and then I have to like go like, oh, no, this is real. Like, this is happening and this shit is crazy. Oh, um, I had my first dream where it was about coronavirus last night. Okay. Oh, so, wow. What happened? Oh, it was just, I don't even remember like what the context was, but it was like, oh, no, you can't go out because of coronavirus. It oh. was like the first thing that I said in the dream was like, yeah. no, like I had, apparently I have integrated that with my subconscious. Yeah, exactly. Know. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, we're hearing about it constantly, and I'm sure, you know, of course, it's um, even if, you know, you're not in a panic, at least for, I speak for myself, but even if I'm not in a panic, like, there's definitely still, you know, an air of fear and a strong concern, and um, yeah, I'm sure subconsciously we're all kind of, our bodies are trying to unravel and figure out how to deal with this. We've never, yeah. in our lifetimes, haven't had to deal with something in this way so yeah well it's been interesting to watch all the people try to cope with what has been the reality for a lot of people with chronic illness for a long time where it's like oh mm -hmm. okay now you're in your house and you can't go anywhere unless it's a necessity 
like we've all we've all had spells of that you know that lasts a lot longer than I, I mean they're predicting two weeks but I I'm not convinced it's going to be that short for quarantining yeah. but I mean I've I've gone a month without going outside like for fresh yeah. air before yeah is, yeah and it's been it's been interesting to kind of watch the world not cope with it well <laughs> um it's been weirdly validating for me to be like oh okay that was really hard on me <laughs> like previously yeah. to not be able to do things but yeah. there is a sense where like when healthy people are complaining about you know i can't do anything it's kind of like well you can deep clean your house do two hours of yoga and then call your friends whereas a lot of us are still just like it's flat on your back and you can't talk more than 10 minutes at a time like gotta yeah. check your privilege <laughs> at several levels here <laughs> yeah it's true yeah it's um it's been a very yeah it has been very interesting to watch the public deal with that idea of having restrictions on what they can or can't do or having to not do things that they want to do um basically having that freedom taken away from them whereas in the chronic illness world we're more used to living in that way a lot of people are more used yes. to living that way as it is um and yeah actually i you know and i on a personal level i have like relatively severe mcs multiple chemical sensitivities and so i generally don't um really have like i don't touch people um mm -hmm. or hug them i definitely don't shake hands so for me that part of it is already very familiar which which is sad, but it's just the way that it is. Yeah. And so for me, it's almost like there's a tiny sense of relief in that I don't have to be the weird one that turns those things down right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I don't have to turn away the handshake and have and someone like give me a weird look or um, or say, no, I can't hug you. And I mean, right now it's just I'm just like everyone else. So that's it's kind of nice. And then also um, I think I was telling you yesterday that I was able to join there's a couple groups uh that normally meet in person that I can't ever attend due to where they are where they are and uh, my sensitivities to fragrances and things and they met online instead so for me I was actually having more social interaction than normal because yeah. these places that I wanted to be a part of were finding ways to meet online instead of being around each other. And, um, you know, so it is, it's really interesting to find this like meeting of th this thing that's so new and strange to the rest of society that we've kind of, that people with chronic illness have sort of had experience at different variations, different levels, uh, you know, significant portion of their life. So, and, and I, I don't want to say everyone because chronic illness, that's why this could be like such a long yes. conversation, but I mean, everyone's experience of chronic illness is so totally different, not only person to person, but throughout your life. I mean, throughout the life of chronic illness, it's, it's the stages of that change a lot. So, um, but yeah, I think there's, you know, I think part 
a part of why I wanted to do this podcast, there's a couple reasons. And one of the reasons is because I have a lot of really cool friends that have a lot of cool shit to say. And one of the other reasons is because a lot of my friends have different variations of chronic illnesses and, and I think there's so many misconceptions of what chronic illness is, especially in the certain, a lot of the things that we deal with, which are invisible illnesses. And these people's experiences tend to get swept under the rug or just missed and not seen um, because there is this invisibility about it. And, and I think that, um, I think that there's a huge piece of healing that comes with validating our experiences and not outcasting them and, you know, and, and not hiding them in shame and these things which are, which perpetuate um, illness. And so I think it's good to talk about. Yeah, I agree. I Finding finding community for me as I mean I found heel click and its predecessor when I was still a teenager and Mm -hmm. it was so incredibly helpful for me just psychologically to just have people where I could just say something where like people in my day-to-day life would be like what what are you talking about that I've never experienced that in my life and people would just be like oh yeah that's totally normal I have that all the time (laughs) yeah yeah exactly and yeah just to to feel validated and to feel normal even in like even when the things that we were talking about were like heartbreaking and so difficult to deal with the fact that it was normal was so like reassuring to a part of my soul that I didn't realize needed its own nurturing and to not feel like I was the only one going through something was really necessary. I think I don't, I don't know what my life would look like had I not found this community and truly like a sense of hope. And I don't mean the sense of like, I, I have hope that I will be cured. I found hope that I could still live like a full and worthwhile life even if I didn't have anything change in the severity or set of symptoms or anything like that. Like the whole reason that I got on um, OkCupid in the first place is I met another patient in real life and met her and her husband. And I was like, okay, explain to me how you found him. And she was like, okay, Cupid. And I just went and met a profile. Cause I was like, this is, she had a wonderful marriage. And I was like, I want I want that Mm. and apparently that is attainable and I yeah I had never had anything like that modeled for me where somebody who was still you know still dealing with symptoms on a day-to-day basis could have this like to have this happy relationship and I was like okay cool I'm gonna go get one of those (laughs) and it worked for me Mm. I'm not saying that the (laughs) equation for everyone is go get okay cupid and you'll get happily ever (laughs) after Apparently, maybe if they pay me, I'll start saying that. But (laughs) (laughs) yeah, this is not sponsored by OkCupid. But if they wanted to, we could talk about it. (laughs) I want to get you that sponsorship money. (laughs) Okay, sounds good. But yeah, just to have a sense of, you know, like people Mm -hmm. to look up to, even just Mm -hmm. friends to be like, they were able to do this. Maybe I can too. And you know, I can't do everything that 
my friends are doing because we all have very different experiences but just to have that sense of like that could be attainable for me versus kind of staring out out into the world and going I don't think I can do anything because that all looks like it requires a lot of energy (laughs) (laughs) a lot of things I don't have right now exactly exactly yeah it's it's a strange lens to to look through the world at and it's also incredibly beautiful in a in a way um I've met some of I mean the most amazing people through it and um just such deeply generous and sweet souls yeah that's also been my experience that uh, yeah the people Mm -hmm. that I've met um you know somebody knew that I was struggling to make ends meet right out out of college and was just like here let me connect you with this person and got me a development job you know it was a it was a part-time contract but it made I mean it was the difference between making it and not making it for many months and you know just Mm -hmm. things like that where people will take the time out of their day and out of their life and their limited store of energy to help each other has been so it's been so beautiful to watch and you know, have a chance to participate in, in my own little way when I can, that, yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing community. Yeah, I agree. Well, Rachel, I deeply cherish your friendship. And I want to thank you for all the times. Wow, you've been there for me so many difficult times. And it means the world to me. I am so lucky to know you and to be able to help when I can in my Mm. own small way. You've also been there (laughs) for a lot of my journey and I'm looking forward to uh, maybe we'll have another interview once you're settled into a a stable house and we can talk about what that looks like for you. That would be wonderful. All right. Well, thanks so much for talking today, Rachel, and I'll be chatting with you soon. Sounds good. Thank you.